Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. It's Monday, February 19th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. So you're a big fan of Winter Olympics, right? Absolutely. What are you looking out for? Well, number one, hockey for me. But I have to admit, one of the reasons I love the Winter Olympics is we see sports that we just don't see the other four years in between. Ones that really push uh, Olympic athletes just to the edge of what's possible. It's terrifying to look at. Yeah. And and, and there's also a lot of beauty. And, you know, there are people who will argue whether figure skating is a sport. You know, if you if you choose the score in the end, is that a sport? You know, we don't necessarily want to get into that whole argument. Um, But there's a lot of beauty to look at. And there's certainly for me, my favorite is watching slalom, watching the skiing, downhill skiing. Um, I, uh, I, used, I skied as a kid and, and I raced a little bit, not very well at all. Uh, but it's really fun to watch people do it really well. I have to say the one that I've been obsessed with that is a little bit out there is biathlon where they cross country ski for miles and miles and miles and then have to stop on a dime and shoot targets and then go back out and ski some more because it just seems like this strange combination of endurance and accuracy and focus that seems like what marathon runners go through. Well, boy, do I have a good interview lined up for you. For this week, I interviewed Alex Hutchinson, whose new book is called Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. So Alex started out as a physicist. He actually has a PhD from the University of Cambridge, not a bad school, in physics. Um, And while he was in school and in his during his postdoc, he started competing as a runner, um, particularly in middle and long distance for the Canadian national team. So like, you know, no joke, not just, you know, weekend warrior. And that got him interested in what it was that made him do well on some races and not on others. And so he, over the last number of years, has been researching this very question. And he brought together all the best scientists and all the best historical research uh, on this question of why do some people endure? And like, for me, one of the most fascinating things is, you know, you can literally exhaust yourself to death. Like you can, people do this, you, you, you know, but it's rare. And why don't we do it all the time? Well, I think it, it, like, for me, when I think about that, like I, when I played goalie uh, growing up, one of the things is there was a certain amount of pain that just came as you sort of pushed yourself and pushed yourself and pushed yourself. And I remember feeling at some point, like this is enough for me. I can't go any farther. 
Like there was no mind over matter for me. That was like, that was it. Yeah. I feel like I hit those walls all the time too in my workouts. And part of me wonders like, I mean, I definitely feels as if it's a physical limitation, but I also know from, you know, my neuroscience work that pain is subjective and it can change according to context. Um, and so, you know, is that, you know, is, is that really hitting a wall, a physical limitation or is it psychological? So let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Alex Hutchinson. Alex Hutchinson, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks, Andrea. It's great to be here. So, Alex, you've been a longtime runner and a longtime long-distance runner, and you've experienced moments in which you've had an inexplicably good race and then moments in which you thought you were doing better than you were. Um, is that what got you interested in this whole topic of endurance, uh, or was that just kind of a side thing that you know kind of kept your interest? Yeah, definitely my interest in endurance comes from the the many many years I spent and the many days I spent pushing those limits uh you know on tracks and on on trails. Y you can't help but wonder, you know, when you're trying to go you know 1% faster, what what is it that's uh that's either allowing you or preventing you from from doing that? But at a certain point if it was very deterministic it would it wouldn't be all that interesting if you could just measure my you know oxygen capacity and the the size of my heart and say all right well you you know your your potential is you know 2 hours 42 minutes and 38 seconds for the marathon uh you find out once and that's not interesting and what was interesting to me is the ways in which limits keep changing or are altered suddenly for reasons that you can't quite uh, explain. So I had some I had some experiences like that, as you mentioned. I had I had one race where, uh, you know, I'd been stuck at a sort of plateau trying to break four minutes for fifteen hundred meters, which is a little shorter than a mile. For about four years, I'd been running four hundred one and four hundred two. So I felt like I had reached the ultimate physical plateau that I was approaching my limits. And then because of a misunderstanding, because the timekeeper was calling the wrong splits during the race. I, I I got this misleading impression into how well I was doing, and suddenly I ran 3:52, so nine seconds faster. And so I think that's the kind of moment when I trace back, like why have I why have I had this sort of white whale obsession with endurance for the last decade? Probably for that that was the moment when I was like, okay, uh, there's something more here than just it's not just a plumbing contest trying to figure out how how quickly you can pump blood to your muscles. And you know, for a long time, maybe even from the beginning of sort of sports physiology that's been uh, the kind of status quo, the idea that, you know, there are physical limitations that everybody has. And once you reach those limits, there's just nothing you can do. Yeah. And for sure, we all understand that the brain does play a role that, you know, it's it's not like we're just robots. But there there was this dominant paradigm that basically uh, arose in the 20th century, uh, which was that if we could figure out enough, if we could understand clearly enough how the muscles work, we would be able to sort of determine what every person's 100% capacity is. And sure, maybe you don't always get 100% out of yourself, but we would understand everyone's physical limits. And so you can go back there. There's these fascinating articles in Scientific American from the 1920s where by Nobel Prize winners saying, you know, the human body is a machine. And once we learn to measure the parts of the machine, we'll be able to really accurately predict the limits of human performance. And that that was a really... Uh, sort of fascinating area of research, and it taught us a lot about how the body works. But we got to the end of the 20th century, and no amount of physiological testing could still predict who would win a race. And it sort of became increasingly clear that we needed to, that that the brain wasn't just this sort of little extra thing that you had to 
uh, tack on at the end that it's actually fundamental to figuring out what your limits are is uh, figuring out what role your brain is going to play. And yet that's not at all how it feels when you're running. You know, it feels as if it's your body that's giving out, even if your brain has all the great intentions. You know, it, it, it feels very physical. And uh, so I, I want to get into, you know, the fascinating parts of, you know, science of, of, of exactly how to train the brain to, to go beyond these limits. But first, I want to just you know, talk a little bit about what probably most people who are sports aficionados are familiar with and, and where, you know, for me, your book really introduced a paradigm shift, which is this notion of VO2 max. Um, so tell us a little bit about, you know, what VO2 max is, why it seemed to be such an important, you know, thing. Um, and then we can talk about what's replaced it. Yeah. So VO2 max, you know, for anyone who is, who is, Sort of taken an endurance sport seriously, you've come across this term, and what what it the, the full word name for it is maximal oxygen uptake. Uh, and if you want to do any sort of extended exercise, one of the key limiting factors is how quickly you can deliver oxygen from the air into your lungs, into your bloodstream, and eventually to your muscles, where it's used to help uh, generate the fuel for for prolonged exercise, for aerobic exercise. And so. Back in the 1920s, again, this this guy A. V. Hill, who who was a Nobel Prize winner, he started to think, well, maybe we could actually measure the maximum capacity of the system, and so they did these you know elaborate experiments running around his backyard with bags breathing into bags, which they would then tie off and measure the oxygen and carbon dioxide content of. And these days, you, you can do it much more easily, but it's still this idea that VO2 max is the absolute maximum. Uh, rate that you can deliver oxygen to your muscles, it's an important concept. That it's, a, it's a really good measure of physical fitness. And in fact, even in the last couple of years, there's been calls for declaring it a sort of vital sign that doctors should be measuring or estimating your VO2 max uh, when, when, you know, when you go for your checkup because it's a great indicator of aerobic fitness. The problem is it's, it's not everything. It doesn't... It doesn't it doesn't tell you, you know, how fast you're going to be able to run or how, or whether you're going to win a race. But it does give this kind of sense of, you know, it's the size of the bottle. You 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 have a big bottle, and and then the brain determines how much of that bottle you're going to be able to to uh, extract from. I think. But that's yeah. The 20th century was sort of the age of VO2 max. That if we could understand VO2 max, we would, or measure VO2 max, we would be able to predict everyone's maximal capacity. But as you mentioned, there are, you know, stories and, and lots of examples of individuals who seem to outperform their VO2 max and, and surprise the uh, physiologists who are measuring them. Yeah, and a lot of that depends on the nature of the sample you look at. So if you take the competitors in the Olympic marathon and you measure their VO2 maxes, that's not going to tell you very much about who's going to win. Now, that's not to say that VO2 max is meaningless. If you take a random sample from the population and measure their VO2 max, uh, you're going to be able to tell a lot. You're going to be able to get, have a very good prediction of who's going to win in a foot race based on their VO2 max because some people are going to be down at 20 milliliters of oxygen per minute per kilogram of body weight. Other people are going to be up at 80. And the guy who's got a 20 is never going to beat the guy who's got an 80, no matter how incredibly mentally tough he is. Uh, in the same way that, you know, you, you could you could transplant uh, you know, and the best brain in the world into my body, and I'm not going to win the Olympics tomorrow. But what happens is when you get any sort of homogeneous group of people like Olympic athletes, then the VO2 max or any other set of physiological measurements is no longer enough to tell you who's going to win. 
uh, and, and similarly, if you're trying to push your own limits, if you're trying to understand how much can I do, uh, then the physiological measurements will never really give you a full answer. Uh, you, you, you can never accurately predict how fast you're going to run if you don't take into account the brain. So I want to keep talking a little bit about some of the physical um, sort of categories that that we sort of associate with our limits, and then and then move on to the brain. And so let's talk a little bit about oxygen. Um, so you know that seems to be obviously an important uh, factor for running or uh, aerobic sports. But there's also individuals who seem to be able to hold their breath for longer than should be humanly possible. What's that all about? This is probably the most was really the most eye-opening area for me. Like like we said at the top, I you know I came at this as a runner. Uh, basically, I, I was trying to answer the question of why, why why wasn't I faster than I was? What was holding me back? But when I sort of broadened the scope and, and tried to look at endurance uh, in in a in a in a bigger picture way, uh, I realized there's all these other examples that, that sort of broaden the definition of endurance. And, and and make me think about it in different ways. So when you're running, you're breathing hard, right? And you, and you feel like, oh, I I can I can't get enough air and I can't get enough oxygen in. But you can simplify that to the simple task of well, how long can you hold your breath? Because then there's no longer there's no no pacing or anything. There's no uh, you know tactics. It it just is deprive yourself of oxygen until you can't anymore. And you'd think that's a very simple task. And so you know, okay, for me personally. Discovering what the world record for breath holding is was was totally mind blowing, and so I would invite listeners right now to just uh, before I say it, think to yourself, what do you think the world record for breath holding is? And now I will tell you, it is eleven minutes and thirty five seconds, um, and that that this is with no tricks. This isn't David Blaine uh, breathing pure oxygen beforehand. This is just pure unadulterated breath holding. And I had a chance to chat uh, not too long ago with with a guy named Brandon Hendrickson, who just set the American record for breath holding, which is eight minutes and thirty five seconds, and was asking him about the experience. And and you know he said after about four minutes is when he started what's called the struggle phase, which is marked by the the beginning of in, what's called involuntary breathing movements. So you're basically your diaphragm, your breathing muscles start trying to contract. They have concluded that you have reached your limits, and this is what most of us feel after, you know, maybe two minutes at most. You feel like you have reached a pure physical limit. This is no illusion. This is a, you're forced to breathe. It turns out that these involuntary breathing movements aren't triggered by a lack of oxygen. They're triggered by rising carbon dioxide levels in your blood that that uh, uh, they basically sound a warning signal. It's a, it's a yellow light that you're you're, you're going to be in trouble soon, but you're not in trouble yet. And with enough training, if you're a free diver, because most of the elite breath holders come from a free diving background, you learn how to hold your breath, and you essentially learn how to ignore this warning signal. And so, as he said, he his struggle phase started at four minutes. His body thought he was done at four minutes. He was able to do eight minutes and 35 seconds. So it's kind of a factor of two here between what we perceive as our limits and what is the actual limit. And and so then at the end of the breath hold, if you're an elite breath holder who's learned to ignore these involuntary breathing movements, you really can hold your breath until the point where your oxygen levels have declined to the point, to the minimum required to sustain consciousness. So unlike most of us, these guys can actually hold their breaths until they pass out, which is of course very dangerous if you happen to be underwater. Um, and they're able to actually get to a physical limit, which is one of the very rare examples. If you think about all the different physical limits that uh, that you know that you can think about, things like hydration and, and fuel and, and things like that, this is a rare case where some people can voluntarily take themselves right to the edge. 
It's it, it is amazing. And, you know, it, it also sort of reminds me of another story in your book about, um, you know, sometimes you hear this, there there was a, a, a guy and his wife who were driving a pickup truck. And in front of them, there was a Camaro who, you know, hit a bicyclist going the wrong way and was dragging the bicyclist. And so the guy, you know, jumps out of the pickup truck, you know, runs out of the Camaro, lifts up the car uh, in order to, you know, get this bicyclist out. How is that possible? Yeah, well, you know, I, I think that's the, the question zero is: is that really possible? And and it's 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 really hard to determine because these stories they never happen in the laboratory, right? They always happen uh, outside in 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 these circumstances that are hard to duplicate. And so when you start looking into it, you're like, well, the Camaro weighs three thousand pounds, and the, you know the heaviest dead, deadlift on record is like eleven hundred pounds. So there's no way someone could lift something three times uh, three times heavier than the, the heaviest deadlift. But then you start thinking, well, he's not lifting it over his head. He's lifting one end. Uh, it depends on the weight distribution of the car. depends on how stiff the suspension is, uh, you know, because he, he gets some help from the suspension initially. So the physics of these car lifts, which, are, which seem to happen every year or two, um, are, are, are tricky to figure out how, how heavy people are actually lifting. But it happens often enough that it does, uh, there is this sense that we do have a reserve of strength that's only accessible in emergencies. And there's been, you know, not surprisingly, scientists have been kind of searching for this reserve for a long time. And one of the ways they do it is with electrical stimulation of the muscles. You can, and and if you so if you take uh, an electric shock and apply it to to my nerves to make my my muscle contract, it will feel like I am contracting far more strongly than I could ever do voluntarily. So for a long time, people were convinced this was proof that. Yes, if you know your muscles can do more than can do, do more than you're really able to do voluntarily. Once people started to be able to measure the forces a little more accurately, it, it turns out that that's kind of an illusion. <laughs> if you if you get an electric shock, it feels like like hell, but you're actually not producing a lot more uh, force than than you can do voluntarily. So there's this kind of gray area where if you if you isolate one muscle, like a thumb muscle, there's no hidden strength there. You can activate it. You can, you can get all the strength out. But if you're trying to lift a car, you're using something like 17 different muscles, and you have to coordinate them in a specific way. And so it's much more possible that there may be some inefficiencies there that are only ironed out if it's life or death, and that you can actually you know, you, you you actually are able to kind of max out 100% of all these different muscles and do something that you wouldn't be able to do otherwise. But I would, in terms of the sort of the final scientific verdict uh, I, I, on hysterical strength and which, which is what it's often called, I would say it's it's still to be determined. It's still it's still controversial. Not um, there's there's scientists who would argue either way on that. Hmm. Uh, you know, and that that kind of starts to bring us to the sort of brain question. And and before we dive you know, all the way in, I thought, you know, a good kind of transitional topic would be pain, which, you know, is, you know, we, we, we sometimes we, we think of pain as being in the muscle, but, you know, it's entirely in the brain in terms of your, your actual subjective feeling of the pain. So let's talk a little bit about that. When we hear about people who have uh, broken a bone or, or, or had some kind of an injury in the middle of a endurance feat, uh, and yet they still continue. Uh, is it simply because their brain is just not processing the pain and they are not feeling it? Or do we do we think that there is something else in play? Yeah, there's a couple of different things going on in those situations. So in, a, in an extreme situation like that, where you hurt yourself, but you're in the middle of a competition or something like that, there's, a, there's something called stress-induced analgesia, which 
uh, in certain circumstances. And the, the, so the, the evolutionary basis, one of the pain researchers I spoke to, he said, listen, if you're, if you're a deer and you're being chased by a wolf and you fall and break your leg, you don't have time to say, whoa, time out, time out, uh, injury, uh, you know, two minutes while I splint my leg. You just got to keep running. And so evolution has gifted us with the ability to basically block out pain, to not detect it under conditions of extreme stress. And that's why it's actually when I started looking into this, I was thinking, oh, I need to include an example of some athlete who has done this. And, you know, you start looking into it and it's like, oh, this is basically like, uh, you know, twice a year, there's someone who literally breaks a a bone and plays through the rest of the period or the rest of the quarter. And sometimes, you know, there's some famous examples, you know, I'm Canadian. So the hockey example is Bobby Bond scoring the Stanley Cup winner on what turned out to be a broken ankle in overtime. So the, these things are kind of the extreme of, of they're actually not feeling the pain at that point for the most part. It, like they're playing through something, but but the the brain chemicals in their head are, are, are just saying, you know what, let's just turn down the volume and, and not worry about it. But there's also, there's more to it than that because uh, the study of pain in athletes is actually really fascinating because it turns out that the process of training doesn't just sculpt your body. It also changes your how your relationship with pain over over a long period of time. And you can you can track the pain tolerance of athletes through a competitive season and see it going up and down, not just in their athletic pursuits, but if you if you do something totally different, like test their pain tolerance by having them dunk their hands in ice water or uh, you know squeezing a blood pressure cuff around their arm, you can see that they get more and more. Uh, they they don't they don't change their sensitivity to pain. Athletes and non-athletes have exactly the same point at which they'd say, "Wow, that hurts." It, like if you let's say you give them electric shocks and you make them gradually stronger and stronger. Everyone, not you know, on average, athletes and non-athletes are going to say, um, "Yeah, that hurts." At roughly the same point, the difference is that the athletes are going to continue to tolerate as the shocks get stronger and stronger. It hurts them, but they're willing to to tolerate it for longer, and. There may be some changes in pain perception, like I was talking about earlier with stress-induced analgesia, but for the most part, what researchers think is is it's more a difference on a on a chronic level of uh, learning psychological coping mechanisms that they're they're feeling the pain, they're just willing to tolerate t- tolerate it, and they've learned, for example, they've learned to distract themselves, think about something else. They've also learned to reframe the pain in an emotionally neutral way, so that instead of thinking, "Ah, this hurts, I'm going to die," they think. I'm feeling discomfort. This is useful information to me. It tells me that I can't sustain this pace indefinitely, but I can sustain it for a little bit longer. Maybe I should back off. So there's ways of changing pain from a from a panic signal to just sort of a an information source. And that seems to be something that comes as part of the package when you do endurance activities on a regular basis. Yeah, I remember uh, I had this one, you know, I, I started taking spin classes a long time ago. And at first, I was incredibly intimidated. I was like, Oh, my God, I can never do this. And then I had this great uh, Brazilian instructor named Fernando. And he would say, Look, the first 10 minutes are going to suck. And then after that, it's going to be fine. And I don't even I don't even know if he was really right. But I've taken that sort of, you know, thought with me every time I go for a run, anytime I go through a spin class thinking like, yeah, it sucks right now, but it's going to be fine in a few minutes. And I, I feel like it makes a huge difference in terms of your ability to keep going in the face of discomfort. Yeah. And I think those those first 10 minutes are actually, uh, you know, one of the great public health barriers of of, uh, of modern times is that you know, people start exercising it. And look, there's no, there's no two ways around it. It, it. it can feel pretty uncomfortable initially, but as you say, as if you're able to get over that barrier, it actually you start to learn. 
I mean, it starts to feel more comfortable, but and you also start to get get accustomed to that, and and it just doesn't feel as uncomfortable. Nothing is as uncomfortable as it feels like at the beginning. Over time, you just learn to cope with it. But it's 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 hard to convey that message, and also to give the the longer term message that it's not just about the first ten minutes. It's also the first six months. You know, you're 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 getting in physical shape, but you're also your brain is changing, and after over over time, you're going to learn these strategies such that. You're able to push yourself much harder, but you're also able to just tolerate a nice low level of of effort with with what it just seems easy for me. For me, you know, I've been running for 25 years now, and sometimes I run uh, hard workouts which are ex, you know excruciating. They're they're as hard as I can go. But most of the running I do is is totally comfortable, and I'm out there with friends chatting, and it's not it's no longer an effort for me because over time I've learned to sort of get used to that uh, exertion. So let's talk a little bit about uh, what we now know, you know, in terms of this kind of brain process. Uh, and, and you know, we I, at the top of the show, we sort of mentioned how the fact that people can sort of overcome their physical limits has to do with what's happening in their brain. Um, so what do we know about that? What, uh, you know, how, how are, are like, are, do we know 10% of what people are, are what's going on in the brain? Or do we know 50% sort of wh- where are we in the state of understanding uh, the way that the role that the brain plays in terms of uh, these endurance feats? Yeah, well, you know, I think there's a bunch of different people who think they know 75%, but the, the, that 75% conflicts. So there's lots of different ideas. And it's, 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 a, it's a super active and controversial area of science right now, uh, where the final answers are definitely not uh, n- known at this point. Uh, there's a couple of of sort of main ideas that that people think about. One is this idea that emerged in the 1990s from a uh, first from a guy in South Africa named Tim Noakes, which is that the brain acts as sort of a central governor. That that we have this evolutionarily driven impulse to protect ourselves to make sure that you know if if I head out, if I leave this you know the studio, walk out on the street, and just start sprinting and running as hard as I can, I won't be able to run myself unconscious. Uh, I will get too tired basically. Uh, before I'm able to run to the point where my, you know, my heart literally has not enough oxygen anymore, and I do damage to myself. And and Noakes's contention is that this is uh, a defense system that's built into us deliberately. That fatigue and and the feeling of of exhaustion is uh, is hardwired into us to anticipate the uh, you know potential catastrophes and to make sure we never actually get to that catastrophic point. Now, there's another view. Uh, mostly advanced by a guy named Samuel Marcora, who's a, a scientist at the University of Kent, who who says that's too complicated. We don't have any sort of advanced warning system or detection system. Endurance is really just about the balance between motivation and effort. And effort is really the, the one area where I think most scientists in the field would would agree is that effort is this sort of master controller, perceived effort, subjective perceived effort. So it matters that your legs are tired or that your body is overheating, but that's not that's not what directly slows you down. You don't slow down because your your core temperature is too high. You slow down because your core temperature feeds back into this subjective sense of effort in your brain, and you perceive that ex- exercise is getting really hard, and so you slow down or you stop. So that sounds like a semantic difference that it's, oh, it, your muscles don't directly stop you. They just make it feel hard so that you stop. But the, the implication of that is that if you can alter your sense of effort, you can alter your endurance without actually changing anything about your muscles. That if you can manipulate the brain, uh, and there, there's fascinating experiments using things like subliminal messages to change your perception of effort, all of a sudden you've changed your physical limits even though you've done nothing below the neck. 
Yeah, I think one of the studies that you described that really stuck with me is the one in which you had people do, a, or not you, I should say, the, the experimenters had people do, and I don't want to blame you because it's apparently a very boring task, a bunch of sort of computer uh, tasks that were just really mentally fatiguing and not pleasant at all. Uh, and then when they were asked to run on a treadmill or do some kind of an exercise, they reported feeling that it took more effort uh, to, to do less. Exactly. And this is one of the things that that kind of jumped out at me is like, wow, this is like exactly what I experience in real life, that that I, uh, uh, you know, I have a job that involves sitting in front of a computer screen. Uh, it, it's not physically demanding in any way. But what, what I've noticed is, if I go and do a run with friends or a workout with friends, uh, you know, at the end of a day, if I've been on deadline trying to write a story before I head out the door, my performance is just totally different. It's it's really uh, suppressed, even though all I've been doing is, you know, moving my fingers on the keyboard. And so this study, which came out in 2009, was really powerful to me that mental fatigue, it, it impacts your sense of effort. And so it, it, it then it has an effect on your physical endurance. And so, you know, I think this has really important implications in terms of how we uh, think about peak performance, whether it's mental or physical peak performance that, you know, just in the same way that you wouldn't run a hundred miles the week before you're running a marathon, you need to give yourself, uh, some, you know, some mental break before a big mental performance. Cause mental fatigue is a real physiological phenomenon. You're not just lazy. If you feel tired after staring at a screen for three hours, you're, you're actually physiologically fatigued. And so that kind of gets me to uh, some work that you described by Marcora, where he actually has a training paradigm for the brain uh, designed to improve your ability to sustain physical limits or to, you know, physical endurance. So can you tell us a, a little bit about that training program um, and, you know, your own experiences with it? Yeah. So Marcora's logic is actually, it, it makes a lot of sense when you, when, when you think about it. I never would have considered it myself, but what he says is, look, if, if you want to get stronger physically, you do things that, uh, that make you physically tired. You do exercise. And so if you want to get mentally stronger, you should do things that mentally fatigue yourself. So his brain training program is basically you, you sit at a screen and you know various letters or shapes or, or, or uh, arrows flash on the screen and you have to press a button, you know, one button corresponding or another button depending on which shapes flash on the screen. It's really easy. Like, you know, a, 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 a second grader could do it. But it requires focus, and you have to focus for you know forty five minutes or an hour or an hour and a half, and so it's it's cognitively demanding. And his argument is that over time, you know, there will be changes in levels of neurotransmitters and and how your brain responds to this stimulus, that you will get greater resistance to mental fatigue. And whether that means you'll be able to focus longer during an exam or be able to keep pushing yourself to stay on pace during a marathon, uh, this sounds a little bit implausible, admittedly. Um, he's done a couple of studies uh, funded by the British Ministry of Defense who are interested in having soldiers be able to maintain their performance despite sleep deprivation and, and other forms of mental fatigue. And the results actually look really promising. And uh, actually, there, there was just a the first independent uh, study by another group was just presented at a conference, which also found physical benefits of mental training. Now the the caveat is that I, I tried this a couple of years ago when it was you know in, on the drawing board. I try, I tried twelve weeks of brain endurance training before running the Ottawa Marathon, and you know I, I started out by doing five minutes at a time, and I, you know I, I I emailed Marcora and said this is this is really boring. Um, you know should I mix up different kinds of training? And 
uh, brain training so it doesn't seem as boring. And he said, no, boring is part of the point. You have to learn to focus on things that are boring. And I thought, well, boy, what have I signed myself up for? I'm going to spend an hour a day doing the most, the world's most boring computer game. So I, 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 I'm hesitant to, uh, to, you know, uh, proclaim this the, the future of of endurance performance because it's man you, you've really got to be motivated to to want to get that zero point five percent increase in performance to want to spend an hour a day doing these brain training tasks. But to me, what's fascinating is the kind of proof of principle that if it works, this is really interesting evidence that our physical limits really are mediated by the brain in this case. And it may have some practical uses for, in certain cases, for, for example, for elite athletes who are already training at a level that they can't just go out and run and, you know, do more running because they'll get injured. Uh, so one of the kind of big caveats in, in brain training to sort of improve cognitive tasks is the, this idea of transfer, that like you can actually train your brain to do something on a computer task and that that training will transfer to better brain function in a sort of unrelated or real world task. And, and that's one of the things that 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 maybe really question this approach is that, you know, is there any evidence that there is transfer uh, in this kind of a Marcora? You know, I, it seems like a pretty specific task that he's using, and maybe he uses a battery of them. Um, but is there any evidence that that you can by, you know, I can understand how you can learn to tolerate one boring task, but does that make it better or easier for you to, to tolerate other boring tasks as well? Yeah. You know, I think this is a super important question because of the, you know, if you look at the, there's a ton of brain training literature and most of it suggests that transferability is very, very low. Now, Marcora has done studies where, uh, the, first of all, the, the initial studies where you do these computer tasks and before and after you do, uh, uh, after you know, after six weeks of training, you do another uh, endurance test, and you compare it to a control group that instead of doing the tasks is just watching a screen passively, so doing something easy. And they do see uh, apparently big improvements in performance. And he's tried to make it a little more specific by having people ride a stationary bike while doing the brain performance tasks. So they're 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 deliberately taxing the parts of the brain involved with endurance performance while adding some extra stress of cognitive performance. Ultimately, I don't think uh, I don't think this question can be answered on a theoretical basis. The only way to prove that it's transferable is to do the studies. Marcora's studies suggest that there is there are transferable transferable benefits to endurance exercise. Uh, when someone invents a new paradigm and the only studies supporting it are their own studies. You you have to reserve judgment. So it was interesting to me that there's a just in the last uh, f few weeks, I think there was a study from the University of Birmingham uh, that seems to support that. But you know, I'm, I'm not going to believe it until it's been replicated in multiple labs under multiple conditions. Um, I think it's a promising idea, but you, you absolutely have to be skeptical in this area. Not not necessarily because people are trying to fudge the results, but because uh, you know people are so suggestible and it's so hard to do properly blinded trials in this area, you know, you know, when you're watching a documentary versus when you're tapping buttons on a screen. Yeah. And that kind of brought me to, uh, you know, something that I see in my Facebook feed all the time. And I and I've ignored it uh, consistently over the last few years, because I just I'm super skeptical of it. Uh, and that is the halo neuroscience uh, technique of actually zapping you know, the motor cortex, presumably to enhance function. And in, in my area, it's really hailed as a way that, you know, you can suddenly learn to play the piano uh, much more easily if you just zap the motor cortex involved in, 
you know, controlling the fingers. And I'm just really skeptical, but you wrote about it. So what was your experience and, and what did the data show? Yeah, you know, it's been an interesting, uh, uh, if I were to plot on a graph my level of faith in the idea that this is a real effect, um, it would it would be, you know, like kind of like the Himalayas going up and down. Um, the idea for in, in the sports context is that if you, there's a, diff, there's a few different ways you can approach it, but one way is if you if you apply brain stimulation to the motor cortex, it makes the neurons there a little bit uh, more excitable, easier to trigger. And so you, you can have less of a signal from the premotor cortex uh, that, that to, to generate a given output to the muscles and to maintain a cycling pace. And so if the if you're getting away with less of a output signal from the brain, that actually corresponds to a lower sense of effort. So it, basically by doing brain stimulation, you're making the... Uh, the 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 effort of of cycling or running at a given pace easier. There were some initial studies in about 2013 that found that it worked, and then there were a bunch of studies that kind of went. It was it was a sort of 50 50 thing. One would work, one wouldn't work, one would work, and 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 in the meantime, as as you said, uh, a Silicon Valley company called Halo Neuroscience commercialized the idea, you know, with basically no uh, research supporting their particular. Uh, approach, which was a set of headphones with uh, with spikes, little, little electrodes on on the band. Um, I tried Halo's headphones. I, I wrote what I thought was a really critical article for the New Yorker about uh, about the <laughs> the use of these Halo neuroscience. I basically called it a, a giant placebo, and then I got a you know a, a email from the publicity or from the PR team saying, "Hey, we loved the article." I thought, "Boy, maybe I didn't write what I thought I wrote." Um, but they uh, they they offered to send me a pair to try out, and I usually don't do product reviews because I think um, they're, they're useful, but they're not what I, I you know they're they're not the, what I view as my strength. But I was so interested in this idea that I decided to give them a try, um, and and my my experiment was a total bust. I'm bald, and, and you know I'm in Canada, so apparently the climate here has has toughened my scalp so much that I couldn't make electrical contact with these headphones. I was grinding them into my scalp so that I had these huge divots in my scalp, and the and the stupid app would still be saying, you know, press a little harder, you don't have electrical contact. So it may be that I have an unnaturally tough scalp, but I wasn't even able to get any firsthand experience. But to bring that all full circle, I guess I, I ended up in a pretty skeptical place that I thought the. The the principles of brain stimulation had potential in certain contexts, but the idea that it was going to be helpful for athletes, I was getting less confident in. But there have been a couple of studies just in the last few months that have tried to identify some of the problems in in why is it that the results are so uh, you know back and forth. One of the issues may be that you need two electrodes to do brain stimulation, and one of them is going to be positive, and one of them is negative. So one of them is going to make the uh, the uh, neurons underneath more e or easier to trigger, and one of them is going to make them harder to trigger. And so you, you may get positive effects on the, on the motor cortex, but depending on where you're putting the other electrode, you may be canceling them out. So they started doing another protocol where you put one electrode on the head and the other on the shoulder so that the current is only going one way through the brain. And they also realized that if you want to do something like cycling, you can't just have one electrode giving the uh, giving the stimulus you need to because it's a full body exercise and you need to stimulate both both sides of the brain. And so there have been a couple of experiments uh, that look relatively convincing to me and that have had positive effects with a protocol that is nothing like the one that is commercially available with you know in terms of the placement of the electrodes and the, the specific details. but I'm I'm once again cautiously 
I wouldn't say optimistic. I'm, I'm once again cautiously fearful that that the reality of of brain stimulation is that it really might work, and that sports authorities are going to have a whole a, a new thing to worry about in terms of figuring out whether this is something that they want to allow athletes to do. Yeah, reading about your um, tough scalp made me want to send you some nice cashmere hats. <laughs> Get <out of> there. <laughs> Maybe just some moisturizer or something um, like that. I don't know. <laughs> so. So that kind of brings me to uh, my last question, which is, you know, we, we've got, you know, it, it's possible, of course, that a lot of these uh, uh, techniques are, are sort of along the same kind of placebo driven lines, right? When it's about belief that you can do it. And that's really what placebo is all about is, is you know, having a belief about something regardless of whether or not it, you know, has uh, a drug in it or sugar pills or, or whether it works or not. So just believing that you've done something that will make it easier for you seems to fit with Marcora's model of, you know, sort of getting over uh, that kind of fatigue that happens in your brain. So what should uh, people who are now watching the Olympics, uh, who are going to be watching these athletes go through, uh, you know, pushing their limits, what should we watch for? Uh, is there anything that is there? Are there any tells in terms of the psychology of these athletes uh, on, you know, as they're going through the race or as they're going through the trial um, that we can see uh, that might give us an indication of, of who's going to pr- uh, prevail on a particular day? Yeah, you know, one of the interesting fingerprints you can kind of look at in in especially in endurance activities. So if we're talking things like cross country skiing and speed skating, is the pacing pattern. Uh, the, and so I you know, I did some interesting self analysis. I, I there's some studies that that look at the the pacing pattern of world records over the years, and I, you know I compared my own. Uh, performance, my own best 5,000 meter runs to the way world record 5,000 meters are run. Now, they're faster than me, that's one thing, but their pacing patterning is also subtly different in some ways and and similar in other ways. So everyone starts fast and then settles into a steady pace. And the the best athletes are those who are able to really keep it steady in that third quarter of the race. That's that's where things tend to to, uh, to fall apart if you're not really mentally uh, on the on the ball, and that's you know in my fast even in my fastest race, you could see that's where I kind of lost some ground. And then there's the finishing sprint, which is this kind of uh, it's this uh, in a sense this physiological mystery because if fatigue was really about tired muscles and you know heart maxed out and things like that, then at the end of a 50k cross country ski race, you're going to be sl- that's when you're going to be slowest because that's when you're most tired but in fact what what you see reliably is that pe- that's when you're fastest that's when people dig out the huge kick and so that's kind of an indicator of accessing that that reserve that uh that indicates that really you know 45k into the 50k race those competitors were feeling tired and looking beat but they're still able to dig down. There was more in the tank then. So I guess you know if you're trying to pick a winner, well, if if I had a reliable way of doing that, I'd be I'd be in Vegas, not not in Toronto. But uh, but watching for how people maintain pace in that third quarter of a race, and then how how much they're able to change gears when they see the finish line is an indication of of the mental aspect of endurance that they're they're going through. Well, I want to let our listeners know that Alex Hutchinson's book, Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance is now available at booksellers everywhere. Alex, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thanks, Andrea. It was really fun to chat. One of the things thinking about the Olympics that I've been seeing is that 
hey, we have teenagers winning gold medals top of their field at like 16, 17 years old. And then we've seen a few 40-year-olds somehow still leverage their body, even though it's in decline, to win gold medals and push beyond athletes even half their age. How do we account for age in this concept of endurance? Yeah, I mean, I think it really is sports specific, right? There are some sports where you just have to, you know, sheer get out there and 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 win it. And I think that's maybe what some of the younger bodies are better able to do. Uh, but then there are sports where you really have to overcome this psychological limitation. And I think that's where experience might be able to come in, um, especially someone who's gone through Olympics, you know, multiple times in previous years. So I think that that's, you know, it's such a different experience to be on the Olympic stage compared to all the training that you're doing. You remember back a couple years ago, we did an episode on dieting and how dieting doesn't work and that we have this notion that willpower, can you can will yourself to diet and, that, and that's an idea that's just totally broken apart by science. Are we in a different situation here that there is something extraordinary about those Olympic athletes when it comes to their willpower, willing themselves past a point that you and I just would never be able to do. Well, I actually think that there's something in between those two things, which is that we we often think of willpower as like a conscious act, but it seems like from what Alex, the research that Alex has described is that a lot of aspects that go into what we think about willpower are outside of our control, but add up, right? So I think of them as like implicit or unconscious, Um, you know, so I think that that sort of, you know, there is obviously a mind over matter, but so much of what the mind does is not available to consciousness for us. Um, And that's where experience can come in. You know, if you've done, this is your eighth Olympics, and you know what it's like, and you don't have all the sort of, you know, hang ups of, you know, this is my first time, and I'm finding my identity and all this kind of stuff, maybe just, you know, unconsciously, your body just behaves differently. Any chance you're going to get back on the slalom hill now (laughs) and go back after that Olympic medal that eluded you for so many years? Definitely not going to go back. uh, Not going to be anywhere near good enough to get an Olympic medal. But, um, you know, my nickname was the Hill Warrior because uh, I would just like tuck it and go (laughs) all the way down the hill as straight as possible. Um, Although these days I'm more interested in making it look pretty. So, you know, I like to carve out my turns. Uh, But yeah, I love skiing. I love the feeling. I love the smells. I love the just, you know, being on the mountain, being in nature. Um, But it's an expensive sport. So, you know, it's something that I do in small bursts. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially Trey Bean, David Noel, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Awald, Kyle Raihalla, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like, like your own Olympic trial times, to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chan. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Keach. Go USA. See you next week. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So... No, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.